0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus. Again, there are sermon handouts for you, uh, and the handout is less, uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of space to take notes, uh, but it is a resource that you can take with you this week, and you can kind of read through it and help set your perspective uh, on the book of Titus. It's a great privilege to begin a new series with you on Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to take ten sermons or so uh, to work through this book in detail because of its great relevance to churches who desire to grow in godliness and in good works. The resource I prepared for you in the bulletin uh, gives a pretty in-depth uh discussion of the historical situation that stands behind the book, including how it relates to other letters like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And then on the the back side of that handout, there is an outline about how the book unfolds. I'm not going to go through that handout word for word, but I want to encourage you to read through that as you study uh, Titus this week. Before we start in Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, next week, I want to consider with you the background of this book, the background of Paul and Titus. I want to consider with you briefly the nature of an island in the Mediterranean called Crete, uh, as that's very important for this book. And then I want to consider, as we close, the driving purpose of the letter of Paul the Apostle to Titus. This morning's a little bit different type of sermon, uh, so if you're a guest, uh, normally we go verse by verse through the scriptures, and when we get into the epistles in the New Testament, sometimes we'll do small passages as we go verse by verse through them. But today, instead of doing that, we're going to do an overview of the book. Uh, I've been reading through Titus for a month now, since I haven't preached uh, in a month, and uh, I've got one of those journal Bibles and if you saw mine, you would just be overwhelmed with all the colors and circles and lines and it it doesn't mean much to most people, uh, but it's been good. And so I've just been reading and reading and reading through the book of Titus. And so I want to give you an overview to help you so that we can gain the, the most amount that we can. This is be a little bit similar to all of us going on a, uh, a, you know, a, a journey like a Journeys of Paul or a trip to the Holy Land, and having a travel guide sit us down on the first day and say, what I'm going to do today is just give you an overview of where we're going in the next two weeks every day. Okay, So you get the overview, kind of set and orient yourself, and then you get to experience each day, each location along the way, separately. That's what we're going to do in Titus today. Uh, considering the original historical situation of a book uh, can uh, open up windows into its meaning and can pave the way for appropriate applications of the scripture to be made. Again, I've got three points in an outline today. The first one is the background of Paul and Titus. Now, it's easy to see as you open up this book in Titus 1 and verse 1 that this letter is a book from Paul the Apostle, verse 1, Paul, servant of God, and apostle of Jesus Christ. And we can see that it's written to Titus, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Okay, so This book is about Paul, and he's writing to Titus. And we'll consider more about Paul and Titus as we go throughout. What I want you to recognize here initially, that I think is very important to understand the book, is to know where Titus is, when Paul writes uh, this book. A few years earlier, before Paul wrote the book of Titus, Paul was escorted from Jerusalem to Rome uh, for a trial and imprisonment. This is identified as the first Roman imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. Perhaps you're aware of this. And do you know what book of the Bible describes that journey that Paul took from Jerusalem when he's incarcerated, journey through the sea to the city of Rome for his first Roman imprisonment. What book is that found in? The book of Acts. If you go to the end of the book of Acts, especially, you will read about that journey. The final chapters of Acts narrate the journey when Paul suffers shipwreck. You remember this? He almost dies, bitten by a snake, Poison sick like should have died it didn't have any effect on him this journey is amazingly described at the very end of the book of Acts well Paul's journey by water through the Mediterranean Sea stops uh, in stops in at least three coastal cities on the island of Crete near the middle of their voyage you could read about that in Acts Chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. So Paul is incarcerated. He's going to Rome for his first Roman imprisonment. And as they're going, they go under the island of Crete for safety. They're trying to avoid some storms. And they stop at at least three coastal, island, or coastal cities on Crete. Perhaps it's this brief time in Crete that caused Paul to develop a burden for the island. So soon after, Paul is released from that two-year Roman imprisonment that's described in Acts chapter uh, 28. He returns, he goes back to Crete with Titus to make disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul and Titus... Uh, remain on Crete to make disciples until Paul has to go to Macedonia. And when he leaves, Titus remains there to strengthen new churches on the island. And then later, Paul writes this letter back to Titus as a guide and an encouragement as he ministers in those cities. If you got that, Paul has some exposure to Crete on that journey. After his imprisonment, he comes back with Titus. They make disciples. Paul has to leave. He leaves Titus there to set up elders in every town, the text says. And then Paul writes Titus back to him to give him encouragement and counsel in how he goes about doing that. So that's a little bit of the background of Paul and Titus. Titus is where? Good, you're doing well so far. On the island of Crete ministering and setting up new churches for the glory of God. That leads us to a second thing that I think will help us as we understand this book, and that is the nature of the island of Crete. The island of Crete is a beautiful island 100 miles south of Greece. It's one of the three big islands in the Mediterranean. There's one off the coast of Italy, remember the boot? The boot there, and off the boot there's Sicily, big island, Then, moreover, by Israel, there is, or by Israel, there is, uh, the island of Cyprus, a large island, but you can see Crete located on this map. It's south of Greece. It's south of what is now today called Turkey, but in the the scriptures is Asia, or Asia Minor, which is where a lot of the cities that Paul ministered into, uh, to were. So, Crete is a hundred miles south of Greece. It is 160 miles long. And anywhere from 7 to 37 miles wide. Well, that might not mean most much for most of us, unless you've been there. Anyone been to Crete? I thought, okay, we got some. Yes, excellent. I should have you up here, describing... Yeah, no, <laughs> then they're shaking their head, no. <laughs> okay. Uh I thought for some of us, perhaps some of us may have lived on uh, Guam, if you're in the military. Uh, Crete is approximately five times bigger than the size of the island of Guam. It's three to four times bigger than the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Well, what we know about the island uh, to this day is it's quite rugged. It's quite rugged. It contains four large mountain ranges, which include the White Mountains, which are covered in snow for most of the year. There was a classical Greek writer by the name of Homer who described Crete in this way. He, and it's a it's a very well-known description of Crete he called it Crete of the 100 cities Crete of the 100 cities homer is claiming at that time when he wrote that there were 100 cities on the island it it's probably a bit exaggerated but the point is, he's making is there wasn't much life in the rural parts of the island it was mainly in the cities now, archaeologists have uncovered remains from 20 significant cities uh, from the time of the New Testament. And one of the things I'd point out about these cities is that they're mostly located along the shore of the island of Crete. And they're connected by roads and, and paths on land and by sea travel. Having spent some time in Australia, I think an analogy here, a comparison to Australia, could be a little helpful... Most of Australia's population is located around the coast, if you've ever been there. Matter of fact, if you've ever seen one of those maps with, you know, at night with the lights from the cities and the population, uh, you know, from well above the earth of Australia, you see all the lights are around the perimeter. That's because most of Australia is uninhabitable in the center of, could, could we call an island or continent, Uh, most of it's uninhabitable. The same is true of this. You've You've got major mountains in the center, and then you have these coastal cities along the edges of the island of Crete. That's why if you look in your Bible at Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, you see that Paul sets Titus a lofty goal. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. So, in his zeal, Paul targets the entire island for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants Titus to set up elders for churches in every town or city on the island of Crete. So, that is the nature of the island, but we can dig a little bit deeper to learn of the culture there. The island of Crete was known especially for three things. It had a reputation for immorality, idolatry, and deceit. The immorality of Crete was infamous. It was unmatched by many other ancient places. According to the book of Titus itself, he says uh, later on in chapter 1 that the islanders there had a reputation for being lazy gluttons, evil beasts and liars. That's what this island was known for, for having lazy gluttons. And Paul says, I agree with that, by the way. We also know from their culture uh, that the culture was known for being promiscuous. It was a promiscuous society. It's known for its seduction and prostitution and womanizing. The sexual immorality in the city was unmatched by many ancient places. Added to that is the idolatry. Uncovered in the remains of these ancient towns were also many temples or marks of pagan idolatry. For instance, remains of tributes to a god by the name of Asclepius, the god of healing, have been unearthed or discovered in 18 out of those 20 cities. So there are remnants of idols and idol worship toward Asclepius and 18 of those cities, including one known, well-known inscription that calls Asclepius the savior of Crete. Very well-known inscription. He's the savior of, of Crete. Even more prominent on the island was the patron god Zeus. Zeus is the chief of gods, and he's also identified as Crete's savior in a well-known inscription found in one of the cities on the southern part of the island. Perhaps this is why Paul so frequently in Titus will identify Jesus and God the Father as, guess what? Savior. In fact, I want to show you these. Because it's a very interesting thing about the book of Titus. Look in your Bible at Titus 1, verse 3 and 4. Okay, so we're kind of picking up. Paul's describing his own apostleship. He says, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So first he describes God the Father as Savior. Then verse 4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Here Paul shifts the the, uh, subject of his conversation of the title Savior from God the Father to Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4. But this is not unique to this chapter. If you look in chapter 2, and verses uh, 10 and 13, you'll see the same. When he's discussing how bond servants or bond slaves should live in verse 10, he says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And then you read a little bit later down in verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, Paul is identifying the true saviors of this world. The true saviors not only of Crete, but of the world. And he says it's God the Father and Jesus Christ. But then in chapter 3, he does it one more time. Look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, that's the Father, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according the hope of eternal life. There's something unique and interesting going on in the book of Titus when it comes to the title Savior. Half of the occurrences of that word Savior in the entire New Testament are found in this one book. Six out of 12 occurrences on these two pages in most Bibles. Savior. And in Titus, the term always describes God first and then Jesus in rapid succession. I think the point he's making is that salvation is found in no other Savior. And this is a direct affront on those false or fake gods that the Cretans love to boast in. This is like what Paul does in the book of Philippians. Remember what he calls Jesus in Philippians as he's writing to that Roman colony? Just one day... Uh, Jesus will be, he's given a name above every name, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Now in Philippi, a Roman colony, that's a direct affront because they're used to identifying one other person as Lord. Who's that? Caesar is Lord. Okay? That's what I think he's doing here with Crete. You want to talk about the true saviors of the world. It's not Asclepius, it's not Zeus. Or any other false God that you have created. It is God the Father and Jesus Christ. Okay? And it strikes me that there may be some here today who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. There is, as Peter says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no other name. If you're here today and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved... ...or delivered from the consequence of your sins, I encourage you to do that before you go. Because according to Scripture, unless you believe in Jesus, you are not saved. But you are under God's wrath. I encourage you to believe in Him today. And so as the originator and as the instrument of our salvation, we worship God and Jesus... The true saviors of this world. Now, there's one other aspect of the island I think that is worthy of our attention, and that is it's also known for lying. It's a city that's known for deceit, uh, 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 sorry, an island that's known for deceit. Here, Zeus's popularity in the island, I think, partially sprung from popular folklore that he was originally a man before he was a god. And that he was born on the island of Crete. That's what the Cretans said about Zeus. He was born here. It's a famous place. They not only said he was born there, they said he died there. And then his cave, that there was a cave on the island where he was buried. Well, that's one of the main reasons why the Cretans became known as a bunch of liars. So look in your Bible at chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Here, they're a, a place that's known for lying. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for lying, kids, if you want to be able to, you know, properly identify your brother or sister here today, the Greek word for lying is krateizo, means to be a liar." This island is known for these things. And I, I go over these things just to help you see why uh, where Paul left Titus and this letter that he gives him is important. It's a difficult city. It's a challenging city, but one important, or uh, island, it's important for the gospel of Christ. Okay, that, that leads us to one last point here I want to make, and this will take up the remaining portion of our sermon. Uh, which, by the way, I, I saw some of you get up and go, and I, I assume that's because your window's down. Okay, so, yeah, I hear the rain too, uh, but I trust God will give us grace to be able to follow uh, this remaining portion of the, the sermon on the book of Titus. Here, the driving purpose of Titus. With all this background in mind, we look to, to the actual emphases that Paul makes in the letter. Okay, and this is where just reading it over and over and over and over and over again, trying to look for what is he emphasizing, I think can bear some fruit. When I think of what Paul is doing in this letter, and we try to discover central driving purpose, I think what we need to do is we need to look for common words and words that are found in strategic locations. And so for me, as I studied the last several weeks, there are three key words that you find repeated, which... We'll uncover. You put the three pieces together. Pastor Dan talked about the jigsaw. You put the three pieces together, and you will see Paul's vision for what healthy churches would look like on Crete. And this is important for us, Colonial, because we want to be a healthy church. Okay, so here are the three words. The the first expression is sound doctrine or doctrine. The second that we'll look at will be the words godliness or godly And the third, if you read through it last night, you may have seen this over and over again. He says, good works. Okay, so I want to look at those three and show you how I think that gives us the driving purpose of this letter. First, doctrine. The word doctrine is used four times in Titus. I want you to see it. Look in Titus 1, verse 9. Titus 1, verse 9. When he talks about setting up overseers or elders, he says, verse 9, that he, an overseer, must be firm to hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So one of the main tasks of these elders that Titus is supposed to be setting up on Crete is that they would instruct in sound doctrine. Then go to chapter 2 and verse 1. This theme is never far from Paul's mind in the book, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you're starting to see a theme that Paul's, he's repeating, okay? Set up elders to instruct in sound doctrine. You, Titus, yourself, you instruct in sound doctrine. Now, in most English Bibles, you might not see it again in verse 7 of chapter 2, but it's there again. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, says Titus. And in your teaching, that could be translated doctrine." Show integrity. It's the same word for sound doctrine earlier. And your in your doctrine be these ways. To Titus. And then a little bit later in verse ten, we've already seen this about bondservants or bond slaves. It says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. I think one of the the main themes of Titus is the idea of sound doctrine. And there are other expressions that don't use the word, but also talk about sound doctrine. Like Titus 1 and verse 1, when Paul says that one of the goals of his apostleship is that people would come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth, sound doctrine, it's the same thing. Later on in chapter 1, he'll, he'll talk about the truth and being sound in the faith. And I think all of these things uh, really uh, go to this first theme found in the book. Doctrine is normally referred to in this book as the teaching or the doctrine. And speaks of, te- of teaching that agrees with Paul's theology. As Paul calls Titus here to emphasize doctrine that is sound, and that conforms to the gospel that Paul preached alongside of him in many cities. So one of the first emphases of the book is doctrine or sound doctrine. The next one is godliness. Okay, and I'm going to show you how I think these three pieces fit together in just a moment. But godliness or the word godly. Godliness is the proper internal character of a believer that comes from genuine faith produced by the Holy Spirit. Godliness is the proper internal character of a believer that comes from genuine faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Puritans, when they would translate this word for godly, would translate it piety. Piety, that internal character that God produces in the life of believers, whereby he transforms them. I think another way of saying this is Christ-likeness. It's the Christ-likeness that God produces internally in us through the Holy Spirit. And the concept of godliness is found all throughout the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy have a lot about godliness. If you're reading through it, you'll just see it over and over again. One of the goals of Paul's apostleship. But in Titus, it's found in two strategic spots. It's found in chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at Titus one one. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. It's one of Paul's goals in the book. Genuine knowledge of the truth produces this godliness in us. It's also found and it captures one of the main lessons that God's grace teaches us in both a negative and a positive way in chapter 2 and verse 12. So look at chapter 2 and verse 12 in your Bible. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's how not to live, things to avoid, ungodliness... And to live positively three ways, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what God's grace teaches us to do. To reject ungodliness and to live in a godly way in this present age. So there's an emphasis in this book on godliness. And then finally there's this emphasis on good works. Emphasis on good works. And this is one of the predominant ones, if not the predominant one. It's mentioned six times here. I just want to show you this in your Bible again. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. About false teachers who are corrupting the island of Crete with their bad theology and bad practice. Look what Paul says. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and they are unfit for any good work. That's the first time we see it. Here's a group of people who have a bad theology, and they can't produce any good works. But we keep reading, we look down in verse 7, and we've read this already. Chapter 2, verse 7, about Titus himself. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. If you keep reading in chapter 2, at the end of verse 14, we find out that there is a group of people that Jesus died to redeem and to purify, and that there's a certain characteristic of the special people. You ready for their identifying characteristic? They are zealous For good works. Zealous for good works, 2 and verse 14. And then in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You think Titus is emphasizing something? You think God, through the Spirit, is emphasizing something to us? It's the idea of the need for good works. You keep reading a little bit later in the book in uh, verse 8. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to. And I won't even finish because you know what the good works. Okay, I did finish. Sorry. Verse 14, chapter 3, And let our people learn. Let our people. Who's that? Churches of Crete. Let our people learn to devote themselves to. Good work. Good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. And so as we consider this one, good works involve exemplary Christian behavior. In the book, Paul calls Titus himself bondservants and all people, all believers in the churches, to demonstrate good works as ideal, external Christian behavior. And he ends this book with a double call to Christians in verse eight and verse fourteen to be devoted to good works. Now, sometimes we as Protestants are uncomfortable with the topic of good works. Okay, and that's predominantly because there is there's another form of Christianity that would say you can be saved by doing good works. Okay, but we do not believe that's true. The Bible clearly condemns that. Okay, I think of places like Romans where Paul says, he says, By works of the law there shall be no flesh, or no flesh will be justified. No person will be justified by obedience to the law or works of the law. Paul clearly proclaims that good works cannot and do not save anyone. Instead, to borrow the words from the Apostle Paul, we must work out our own salvation. Do you know that passage, work out our own salvation, Philippians 2, 12 and 13? That is, believers in Jesus Christ must produce good works after their conversion to demonstrate the genuineness of their Christianity. Okay, so there is a place for good works in Scripture and in the life of a believer. Think of what Paul wrote years earlier than this when he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God calls us all to pursue the good works that he's ordained That we would perform for his glory. So sometimes we get a little twitchy when we read about good works. Or like when we read something in the book of James. When the epistle of James says, uh, faith without works is dead, being alone. Or we might get nervous when we're reading through the pastorals. And we read good works, good works, good works, good works, good works. But what we need to understand is that good works are a vital part of Paul's vision for any healthy church or any healthy believer. That we would all demonstrate good works. So you have these three emphases, right? Doctrine, godliness is the internal change of our character and good works, the external manifestation of the change that God has worked in our lives. Now having established those three, I want to make one more distinction, and that is how I see these three relate to each other. It seems to me that Paul's three emphases have to do with sound doctrine and with genuine Christianity. Okay, so the the last two, godliness and good works, are about Christian character and behavior, but that there's this lumping of two ideas, Paul when writing to Titus about these new churches, is concerned that they would cultivate a grasp of sound theology and manifest genuine Christianity on the island of Crete. And so having done that, what I'd like to do now is just show you how he does that in your Bible. So we're going to end by just reading a few passages here. Okay, and I want to show you how both of these themes, sound doctrine... Genuine Christian behavior and character are on his mind. Uh, First, we see it in Titus 1, verse 1. Okay, and I'm going to read the intro to you. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Here in the introduction, Paul takes time to introduce himself. As a matter of fact, he gives three verses to himself and only like one phrase to Titus. He talks about him being a servant of God, an apostle. And in that description, Paul says that there are two purposes for why he serves as an apostle. Why he sacrifices for this. They're both found in verse 1. He does this for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And he does this for their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Now next week, we're going to try to figure out all the election stuff. Okay, in Titus 1 1 through 4. We're going to talk about that at the beginning of this passage. Today, however, I want you to see that Paul serves and sacrifices as an apostle so that God's people might demonstrate faith and that they might grow in the knowledge of truth. Growing in the knowledge of truth sounds like sound doctrine, doesn't it? Sound doctrine. He serves so that people would come to know the truth. But if you keep reading in verse 1, he describes that such knowledge is that which accords with godliness. It leads to or produces godliness. See, like even in the introduction, Paul says his apostleship is set up so that people would grow in a sound theology and the genuine Christian behavior or character. He's concerned about doctrine and fruit. Now, the rest of chapter 1, the second passage we consider, the rest of chapter 1 uh, has two sections, and although there are two sections to it, I think this vision for sound doctrine and genuine Christianity is near his mind and heart here at all times as well. There are two sections of the rest of chapter 1. My Bible, I put a little bracket around verses 5 through 9, and that's about installing uh, or setting up elders or overseers in the churches. And then the second bracket is verses 10 through 16, and that's about the many false teachers who are corrupting. So you've got these two subjects or topics that he deals with here, but he starts in, by the end of verse 9. If you look at verse 9, he said, These overseers must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to instruct in sound doctrine. We see sound doctrine is on his mind. That's why you need these elders. They can instruct in sound doctrine. But Paul warns them in verses 10 and beyond that there are many people who would contradict sound doctrine and reject it on the island of Crete. In verse 13, he says that these people are not sound in the faith. Verse 13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. They're not sound in the faith. These false teachers in Crete, they're they're not sound. Later on in verse 14, at the very end of the verse, he says that these are people uh, who turn away from the truth. Okay, so he's concerned about doctrine. Yet these people not only turn away from truth, they also deny God by their works. Look at the end of verse 16. But they deny him by their works, They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So again, in this first chapter, when he's got a section about elders and then a section about false teachers, he is using the false teachers as an example of the sort of people who don't care about sound doctrine and they don't have any fruit either. And the elders are set up to challenge the church. You have a twin focus here on doctrine and Christian behavior again. But the twin focus on doctrine and behavior does not stop in chapter 1. It goes a little further. In fact, I think he goes through the whole book, but we'll just look at one more. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Timothy or Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul wants this church to be set up with an understanding, a grasp of sound doctrine. And then in verses 2 through 10, what he does is he gives them what that sound doctrine could include for older men and older women and younger women and younger men and bond servants. This is what the sound doctrine could include. But again, his concern is not just for doctrine. In verses 11 through 14, he turns and shows us very practically how believers should live in light of this. And the grace that God has demonstrated to them. They should, verse 12, chapter 2, they should renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And also demonstrate his... His uh, desire to emphasize genuine Christian behavior at the end of verse 14, he says they should be zealous for good works. And so I ask you, could Paul be any clearer? His vision for Titus and for the churches of Crete is that they would cultivate a grasp of sound doctrine and demonstrate its accompanying fruit, practical Christian living, that comes in the form of godliness and good works. Sometimes I hear believers say things like this. I'm not really into theology. Or, stated positively, I like preaching that really gets to the practical Christian life. Paul's words to Titus is that both theology and behavior are important and interwoven with one another. You cannot have good theology without life change. And you cannot have genuine, lasting life change without a sound theology. Yesterday, our church had the privilege of hearing memories concerning the life of one of our members who just passed away his name is Don Clanton when you heard his salvation which our church our church heard his salvation testimony six years ago when he joined on the floor right here someone found it for me and I listened to it again when you hear his salvation testimony it's very obvious that this man not only but he did had a desire for sound doctrine. He did. He applied himself. He was saved in his middle life, in his 40s. And he gave himself to Bible studies. He wanted to grasp and know the word. But he also gave himself daily to God and desired to live the sort of Christian life, genuine Christian life, to produce the good works that God intended for, for him. As a pastor... Might I share with you that one of my greatest concerns and observations about those who struggle in trials and difficulties is that many times it's because they have a wrong theology in some way or another. Wrong theology, wrong thinking about God and the Christian life will produce results, but those results are not godliness and good works. And so as we close, I ask you just a few questions. First, what are you doing to grow in your cultivation of sound theology that conforms with the Scripture? This is part of Paul's vision for a healthy church and a healthy believer. What are you doing to cultivate a grasp of sound theology? And I think by God's goodness to us, we find ourselves in a place where there's a lot you could be doing. There are a lot of resources available to you to cultivate a grasp of sound theology. Not to mention, like, in just a few minutes, all across this campus, we're going to be having another hour of Bible study. And those adult Bible studies are taught by people who know the Word and love the Word and are looking to to, to help you understand it. What are you doing to cultivate a grasp of sound theology? In the fall and in the spring, we'll start up our equip classes again. Equip classes are on Wednesday night. Wednesday night. And those are available to you whether you come on campus or you you can take them online. One of the the, the tracks in the equip class is this. In the next two years, we're going to overview every book of the Bible. Said, so if you take seven or eight of these classes, you will work through every book of the Bible. There's a track in that equipped session taught by our seminary professors over the ten cardinal areas of theology. Said, so if you took all of these classes, if you took seven or eight of these classes, you will have a class taught by a seminary professor in each one of the theologies. You could take free online classes. You can be involved in different ways. What are you doing to cultivate your grasp of sound theology? That's part of Paul's vision for a healthy church. But then secondly, I would also ask you this question. Are you zealous for good works and godliness? Are you concerned about your internal godliness that God is producing in you? And are you concerned to demonstrate the fruit to which God has called you? He redeemed you and purified you so that you could be zealous for this. Are you zealous to work out what God has done in your life by making a disciple? Are you making, Are there people you're helping? Are there people you're reaching? Is there a person you're trying to disciple? Or in either one of these areas, have you grown complacent? So, you know, when I first came to know the Lord, I was soaking up like every Bible class I could get in. I was just taking it in. I was saying no to extra time at work so that I could come and study. And I just wanted to know more and more and more. But now, not so much. Or you say, when I was first a believer, I was really zealous about demonstrating good works, ministering to people, helping, you know, take care of their needs and giving them the gospel. But now, not so much. Paul's vision for healthy churches is that we would devote ourselves to these things, sound doctrine and genuine Christianity. As you read through Titus, I hope God will use those themes to encourage you as well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the book of Titus. And uh, Lord, in this overview, I've just tried to capture some of what we will see in further detail. Lord, I believe in the ministry of your spirit that you will use your word to change us. I know that change sometimes doesn't happen in one moment at a sermon. And so, Father, I pray either way, whether in response to this sermon or over the course of the next ten sermons in Titus, or as we're reading through it, as we're studying it on our own, that you would produce these good things in us, that you would give us a grasp of sound theology, that we would desire to cultivate it, and that you would produce genuine godliness that produces good works in us. Lord, may this truth be true of our church. May we be good readers of your letter to Titus and the churches of Crete and say that can be applied so directly to us today. We pray that we would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.